Welcome to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, and welcome to another week of Don't Box Me In. You know, there are more than 1.5 million people that are incarcerated in prisons in the United States, and about 700,000 are released each year. In response to surging correction costs and the harmful effects of large-scale incarceration on families and communities, many state and federal agencies have begun numerous prisoner reentry initiatives. This is the bottom line. About 40 states have found that the average yearly cost of incarcerating one person is about 31000 per year. And if we reduce the state prison population by only 1%, that's about 14,000 people, it would result in a savings of nearly $450 million. But the question I'd like to dig in today is in our rush to minimize our prison population, Are we properly preparing the prisoners that we release to be productive citizens in society? My guest today will help me begin to pick apart this question. Joshua Brown is an ex-felon who has turned his life around full circle. He went from a life of crime in the tough streets of New York to helping others leave a life of crime behind them as well. He is one of the success stories that reentry programs can boast about. Joshua, welcome to Don't Box Me In, and I thank you for making time to speak with me today. Well, thank you so much, Lena, and it's great to be on your show. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem. So you were born and raised in Harlem, New York? Yes, I was, right in the projects, in the Wagner projects in the Upper East Side. Okay. When I think Harlem, I think Harlem Renaissance. I think culture and art and music, and, and you grew up in a musical and religious background, correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Very, very religious and so you were um you started playing musical in- instruments at a young age? Yes, I did. I actually started playing the drums around three years old. Then at about four years old, I discovered I could play the piano, which was a surprise to myself and a surprise to my mom, of course, you can imagine. Uh, I think my stepfather was on the piano for about an hour, and I was sitting there listening to him the whole time. And once he got up, I got on the piano, and about 15 minutes later, I started playing everything he had just been playing. And my mom came running out the kitchen. She was screaming and hollering, and she couldn't believe it. And I was looking at her like, okay, you know, I didn't understand what the problem was. I always knew how to play, so it's always been a gift for me. Wow. So it seems at an early age, your life had the opportunity to go, you know, in a magnificent direction. But uh, in spite of that, at 15... Uh, somebody in your family introduced you to marijuana and then life kind of took a turn for you? Yeah, it pretty much did. And that's the unfortunate part, you know, because I know that my family is not the only one who deals with issues like that where family members introduce other family members to either crime or drugs. And once that happened, um, it wasn't right away. Like I said, when I was 15, it happened. And then I didn't do anything else until I was about 17, and I was still interested in what I had tasted and took it from there, and it wound up taking control of me in that instance. So, I mean, who, who, cousin, uncle, or whatever says, you know, I'm going to I mean, give a 15-year-old, you know, a, a joint or something like that? I mean... What? Well, you know, the, the the sad part is you'd be surprised. It was actually one of my mom's boyfriends at the time. And, you know, okay. him and I were pretty cool or whatever. And um, it just, I used to go over there because my mom had had my brother by him. And I would mm-hmm. take him over there, you know, whatever. And he was really nice guy, real cool. And just one day I went over there and he was actually getting high at the kitchen table and he was like, hey, you ever try this? No, no, no. And I, I guess I was curious and because I knew him, I didn't think he would give me something that would harm me if he was doing it. I could, how bad could it be? You know, 15, I don't know. I'm interested. And I did it. <laughs> understood. Understood. Yeah. So you're now at 17 and you start getting high on a regular basis. Uh, 
what happens then at this point in time? Yeah, I'm getting high on a regular basis, and mind you, I'm still in my last year of school, and things just start to progress, I guess, take a downfall in that sense where I'm getting high, and by the time I was 18, I had gotten a job, which is excellent, right out of high school, but I was mm-hmm. still high, and so I would find myself getting high before work, getting high during lunch hour, getting high after work, and after a while, you know, sometimes you can function for a little while, but after a while, it does take a toll on you, and it starts to have its effects, which it did, and I wind up progressing utilizing crack cocaine within the marijuana because you just want something strong after you become immune to that that particular drug. And so things start to progress after that. I wind up finding myself selling drugs because the people that I was buying the drugs from saw something in me because I wasn't, you know, and I want people to understand, you're not always this, you know, dirty, dragged down looking person. Sometimes they are functional addicts go to work mm-hmm. every day, you know, they look nice, they keep themselves up, but they're addicts. But eventually, mm-hmm. that that time does come where it's going to take a hold on you. And they wind up doing that, and guys ask me, hey, you want to sell drugs, make money, whatever? And I said, oh, I guess I could do that, and I can use that to support my habit as opposed to using my paycheck. And I wind up doing that and got into the whole game of selling drugs and, you know, progressing from there. So you didn't keep the job, you let the job go at that time? Well, at that point, I still had the job. And the funny thing about it, you know, I think that I've really been blessed in that area where I've always seemingly been able to keep a job. Even after I lost one, I was able to get another one. And that job, I wind up, I think because, you know, here I am, 18, 19, working after about a year or so, I was able to get my own car, got my first car, you know, help my mom with the rent and everything. And all it is, I'm still getting high in between all of this. And so after a while, I had my first accident. And that accident caused me to be out of work for a few months. And so because of that, I decided, well, maybe I'll need to move on to another job, which I'll wind up actually getting a job with UPS. And back in Mm. those days, you know, people know UPS, good money, good benefits, Mm -hmm. all of that. One of the things I didn't know was that one of the requirements was you have to take a drug, drug test. And, of mm. course, I failed the drug test. I mean, I had a good job. And so that's why I said sometimes it takes a hold on you in one way or another. I wound up failing the drug test, and so now I'm out of a job because I quit the other job to go to UPS, and it didn't work for me. So now you're, you're, you're 19, you have a habit, and you have no job. So... So now I really that, dig into the drug game. I guess it you know, makes it appealing Mm-hmm. And so now I need to do that so I can make work. Okay. So, you know, you start doing, and believe it or not, people that have been in that game understand the sequence that it takes because it's, believe it or not, it's a business. And so here I am going out 10 o'clock at night till 4 in the morning, what they call a shift from 10 to 4, mm-hmm. working, selling drugs, making more money now. You're not working a quote-unquote legal job. You're out there selling streets. So let's fast forward to the age of 23. Um, unfortunately, your claim to fame, fame at that particular time is what? At by the age of 23. By the age of 23, here I am, well-known in the neighborhood, you know, been selling drugs for a minute and gotten what they call uh, moved up the ranks. And so now I've elevated from selling drugs to basically being in the apartment. Now we're talking about guns and a whole quantity of drugs that I'm dealing with. And eventually got to the point where, you know, in this game, in that particular game, you have people who, what they call snitch, and to get themselves out of trouble, Mm -hmm. they'll tell on you. And that's what happened. And I remember the last time, I've been arrested four times, and those three times were open cases. So the last time I got arrested, I remember coming out the building and I had, I, I don't even remember how much um, the quantity of drugs I had on me at the time, but I, it was a lot. And because mm-hmm. someone told on me, they were waiting for me when I came out the building. And they just ran up on me and arrested me. And at that point, I knew I wasn't coming back out because the prior times I had bailed myself out. You know, I had a little money saved. Mm-hmm. Was able to bail myself mm-hmm. out, get out. This time, I knew they weren't going to let me go. 
Okay, so this time you got arrested. You said you had already been rearrested three times, but those were open cases that you were dealing with at that time. So um, when was the first time you were arrested, if you can recall? Well, the first time I was arrested was on the corner. Like I said, I was just really on the corner at that time, dealer. And um, the police just basically ran up on me. I really was new to the game, didn't know anything, and they ran up on me, and I didn't even recognize them, and they arrested me. And because I did not have a record, you know, when I went to the precinct, they looked, they looked, they searched, they searched, they said, he's got to have a record. It was like I was under the radar because I hadn't been known. So I was mm-hmm. able to get ROR, which is released on your own recognizance. And I got mm-hmm. out, had to go back to court, went back to court. That was was still an open case where I was going back and forth to court, but at the same time went back out in the street, waited maybe two days, went back out there and started selling again. They got caught again, and now they realize they caught me the first time. This time they gave me a little fifteen, well, it was a $1,000 bail. You know, I had that mm-hmm. problem. And at the time I was married also, and I told my wife, go get the money, come bail me out. Mm-hmm. Was able to get out. About a week later, went back out on the street, selling drugs again because mind you I have no job so I gotta work it out mm-hmm. and uh, took that chance again and got a court the third time this time they gave me a $3,500 bail I was able to make that bail and so during that time I was out for about maybe a month or two and going back and forth to court these cases they were open but they were looking pretty good in the favor of the fact that like I said I had been working before that and so that was really my defense and working with the judge saying, hey, he's always been working since high school, you know, let's try to give him a chance, whatever, just got caught up, whatever. And kind of worked in my favor because I was probably had to go to court maybe a few more times before they would have just given me probation or something like that. Mm. But um, didn't want to wait and, you know, did the wrong thing and got arrested again. At that point, I knew in the back of the police car that I wasn't coming home no more, so... So if if I'm hearing the timeline right, you got arrested four times, like back to back to back, maybe within two months or so. Yeah, within a three month span. Yeah, pretty much. Oh wow. Okay, so you got arrested the fourth time, and um, I guess New York has a term for what they were. What is it? What is it a, a predicate felon? What is that? The term that they call it? When you have two or more felonies, open felony cases at the same time. They call it a predicate felon, which is, I guess, it sounds scary, right? So it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's basically, you know, you're at a risk of where you are definitely going to go to jail, and they have the option to give you a hard time where you don't get to negotiate too much because of the fact that you had, you know, open cases that were felony cases. It wasn't like they were misdemeanor cases. They were felonies. So anytime mm-hmm. you have two or more mm-hmm. felonies open at the same time, you're considered a predicate felon. Gotcha, gotcha. So now we're you're you're in the car. You're going um, to get, uh, I guess, to uh, booked in here. You know you're going. You're, yeah, you're, you know you're going away for a while. How long were you actually in prison this this last time or the, that time? Well, that particular time, I was in prison for about uh, thirteen months, okay. which was actually way less than the time that I received because when I went to court. And, of course, most times you see the same judge, so they kind of know you at this point, and they're like, oh, no, you know, we have this conversation. And before I even got to the judge, they sent a sentence to me for one to three years. Mm-hmm. And because I had never done time before, I was I, I did not take it. I neglected it. And my lawyer said, well, they're not going to offer it again. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought, ah, don't worry about it. They'll offer it again because it's not that serious. It's only drugs. And mm-hmm. came back to me again about a week later. Said, "Hey, two to four now." And I'm saying, "Are you serious?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "The one to three is off the table." At wow. that point, I decided, "Okay, I need to do something." You know, okay. because I was in a situation where again, my son was just born, and I was like, "I can't keep doing this." And I guess something just came over me. I needed to really, and like again, that background that I had of going to church and being raised in a religious household was really kicked in for me. And I said, you know what? 
I really need to try to change this. And then my mindset became, I need to get this over as quickly as possible because I don't want to do this no more. Because at that point, I guess I've been in for a few months. At that point, you know, after dealing with some things in prison, I was like, I can't do this. I don't Mm -hmm. ever do this again. And so I made a conscious decision at that time. You know what? Take the two to four. I did some research. I've been to the law library. And at that time, they were offering a substitute for doing your time, which was the shock incarceration program, which was only six months. It's like a boot camp, something like what they have in New York on television now, where they have called um, Scared Straight, where they take you into prison. They have different uh, camps that you go to. But this was really very militant, almost like the first uh, six months of boot camp when you go into the Army type situation. And you were able to do that six months of hard labor and hard uh, exercise and you know, screaming and yelling at you as opposed to doing mm-hmm. And so I researched that, and they said I was eligible. So when I went, by the time I went to court, I was ready to cop out. So it wasn't a long process. I just copped out to two to four with the hopes that I would get the program, which I wind up getting. Okay, uh, Joshua, I want you to hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk more about this uh, shock program that you were involved with. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello and welcome back. I am talking with Joshua Brown today. And before the break, uh, we were talking about uh, the shock program that you got to participate. Now, you were sentenced to two to four, but you were given the option to participate in this program. Now, this program took place while you were in prison, or was it like a, a release-type program? No, it was actually while you were in prison. It's mm-hmm. upstate, and it's uh, located near Elmira Prison, which is um, way upstate, about eight hours from New York. So you were still, you're still in prison, but it's considered a minimum prison where there are no, mm-hmm. there are no fences and things of that nature. So it's a basic minimum prison, but there are a lot of security, of course. And mm-hmm. the bottom line is if you try to escape, you know, then you go back and mm-hmm. you do your time, along with whatever yeah. amount of years you're sentenced to for trying to escape. So there was a risk factor, but most people volunteered for this program. So I think the last thing they wanted to do was jeopardize their freedom by trying to escape. So it was a minimum prison. Uh, you get transferred there. Once you agreed for it, you have to go through the paperwork, the proper channels, and you were transferred to the prison. Uh, once we got there, I remember getting off the bus, and because, like I said, it was a militant-type situation, they make you get off the bus and you line up along the blacktop where they tell you to stand. And they were screaming and yelling at everybody and making jokes and cracking jokes. And so I started to laugh because I thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. And one of the, they call them drill instructors, he came over to me mm-hmm. and he said, you think this is funny? And he made me get down and do what they call a crab walk. Is where you walk uh-huh. on your hands and your feet at the same time without your knees. Your knees can't touch the ground. So your rear end is up in the air. You're on your hands and your your feet and walk around what they call a platoon at the time. And I did that about two times. And when I tell you I didn't want to laugh anymore, I didn't want to laugh <laughs> <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. So this is this is a, a this is similar to like you said going to some sort of military boot camp. Then, so I guess you would really only have a certain type of offender that would have the option to participate in this program. It's not like uh, your your convicted murderers or anything would be having access well, to the shock program. Not really, but it, it went by time. Let's say, okay, um, you may have done. A drastic crime, but you got like three to life. You could still mm-hmm. go anything from zero to three to life. You were eligible for this program. So okay. it could be an attempted murder. It could be something like that, but you didn't get a whole lot of time for it. Maybe you were involved in something, attempted manslaughter or whatever. Maybe they gave you two to four. Maybe they gave you three to life. There were people in there with three to life. You were able to still get this program. So it really didn't depend on the crime. It depended on the time of the sentence that you received for your crime. 
And I'm, I'm hoping that the program was to impart more than the physical thing. What, what else did the program involve or do for you guys besides just the boot camp process? Were there like life skills and other things that they were teaching there while you guys were there? Yes, there were. There were a multitude of things that they taught. Like you were given the opportunity to go back to school. Like mm-hmm. there were a lot of guys who dropped out of school for fifth grade. You were able to pick up with, at whatever grade you dropped out on and be able to begin your educational process from that from that grade. So if you dropped out of fifth grade, you would put that down on the paper. They would re-enroll you at the fifth grade level of schooling. So mm-hmm. they had all grades up to 12, which was excellent. Um, if you needed to get your GED, if you wanted to just do your GED, you had finished high school, you were able to do that also. Um, whatever level that was, and they had life skills pertaining to, you know, of course, resume writing, what to do when you get out. They also, the other skills that they had that really stuck with me also is just even with the military part of it, like getting up in the morning, we had to get up at 5.30 every morning. It taught me how, mm-hmm. which I thought was impossible, to take a shower, shave, use the bathroom, <laughs> all this other stuff in like five minutes. I mean, literally. Wow. You had two minutes in the shower, you had a minute to shave, you had a minute to brush your teeth and get out and be dressed back in your dorm in front of your bed, which was, I was like saying to myself, this is not going to happen. This is not going to work. But after a while, (laughs) you find yourself doing it, and I tell you, it stuck with me, it stuck with me. And so along with that, of course, they had life skills, and then they had what we call, and now is the network program, which I was a part of. And that was a program that you would go to every day at 4 p.m., and you would spend an hour in this program. And it's basically teaching you how to deal with the stress, how to deal with issues in your life, whatever they might be, family, you know, when you're out Mm -hmm. on the street working, drugs, whatever your situation was. That particular program dealt with that part of it. And then... I'm sorry, the network program took place while you were also participating in the shock program there yeah, at that's camp? that's where I was introduced to it at, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, so um, you eventually became a group leader of the, was it the shock program or the network program? Of the network program, the me becoming a group leader was actually once I was released because during the whole six months process, Okay. You know, you can only be a part, a participant. You can't necessarily lead, but you can be a participant. Okay. The only way they let you lead within the shock program is if you were within the platoon part of it, meaning like you could be a, like I was a platoon leader for about four months. I was also mm-hmm. a um, section leader there, and that, that was a good part of it too. Okay, so you um, you did the the two to four years. It, it reduced your sentence to the six months, so you. Right, six months, right? Right, yes. Okay, so then you're released, and that was in 1991? 1991, yep. November 6th. Okay. I'll never forget it. <laughs> November 6th. <laughs> so you're released from prison, and you're standing there, and you're like, now what? Or did well, they have something in place? What happens is you, when you sign your release papers, your parole papers, you have the understanding that upon your parole, you will have to report the very next morning to what they call aftershock. Aftershock is another six months of intensive parole that works in conjunction with the shock program. So there was a separate parole, there were separate parole officers and a separate department for the shock incarceration parolees. So we had to do six months inside during the shock and then six months outside. So when you signed that release paper, you understood that. So the only time you really had was when you came home. So when I came home, the first thing I did was go to the barbershop. Okay. Go to the barbershop and then report where you were supposed to report to. Well, by that time it was evening, so I had to report 8.30 the next morning to the parole office in, in New York. Okay. So... What happens, I mean, just let's just say, what happens if you, you don't report to the Aftershock program? Um, if you don't report to the Aftershock program, you immediately go back to jail to finish your sentence, your original time. So for you, it would have been you would have completed four years? I would have had to do my four years, yeah. At that point, you don't get any more two to four. It becomes whatever your latter number was. 
Okay, okay. So you go and you um, enroll in the Aftershock program, and what kind of programs or services does the Aftershock program provide for you? The Aftershock program provided a program, number one, called the Fellowship, and what Mm -hmm. Fellowship does was like a group session that you would have with someone, a counselor, and they would meet with, most times it would be within the same platoon. They would never really mix you up. So if you had a platoon, like our platoon graduated 37 guys. So between the 37 guys, they had about a few classes with 10 of us in it, so about three different classes. But we were all from the same platoon. That fellowship would have you talk about how you feel about being out, things of that nature, and try to get get some information out of you concerning how you feel, what are you going to do now, uh, how, what steps are you taking to better yourself and stuff like that. So it was fellowship. It was network. You had to attend network program. So you had to sign up for the network program on the outside, which means they had it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So you had to go at least twice a week. So you had to mm-hmm. The Monday and Wednesday or Tuesday and Thursday, and then they were in different boroughs. So whatever borough you had to go, you had to report. And if you did not report, again, you take you run the risk of violating your parole and going back to prison. Okay. And okay. along with that, after Fellowship Network, then you had to maintain and seek employment, of course, which is one of the mm-hmm. one thing to do. Okay. So, you know... Um being the go-getter that you are, you eventually became a group leader in this program? Yes, I did. Um, with that, you complete four months. After your four months, they give you a certificate of completion. They come up, they have a little, you know, a little ceremony. Come up, you come up, they acknowledge you, which is good, you know, kind of encouraging. And you take that certificate, you give it to your parole officer, and then you're released to what they call regular parole. Now, now my regular parole was probably uh, about a year and a half after the six months, so now you're on a year and a half of regular parole, which they wind up cutting short because I did become a group leader because once I finished, I kept going back because it was good for me. You know, it really, really helped me talk about some things that I was going through. It helped me hear what other people were dealing with and how we come together as one and talk about the different things that we could you know, work with each other, and maybe even trade, you know, kind of trade ideas and things of that nature. One of the key phrases they would use in network is, what works for me? So if I had an issue that I brought to the floor or to the group, somebody would say, well, what works for me is I do X, Y, and Z. Because you don't ever want to resort to trying to give advice, you know, but you say, what works for you? And then I could take what works for you and try it and see if it works for me. And so because I felt it was a good program, I kept going. And because of that, they asked me one night if I wanted to be a group leader. And I said, yes. And they paid me to be a group leader, which was excellent. Good job, good job. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here. Uh, when I come back, I want to talk um, a little bit more about the benefits and and how uh, these types of programs help out ex-felons. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. I am happy to be with Joshua Brown today. And, uh, you know, he's giving us some, you know, sharing with us uh, his story. And um, I want to I want to say that you are one of the success stories that these reentry programs can boast about. Um do you feel your story is rare? I mean, like, do does every felon have the same opportunities to succeed like you have? Um, I believe they do. I believe they do. And I've seen it happen. I've seen people not take advantage of it. And that's one of the things I will, I've always shared with some of my clients that I've dealt with in the past is that, you know, when it comes to the state, and that's any state, any city that you're in, the state gives you an opportunity to take advantage of the different programs, the different opportunities that they have where you can actually succeed and come out of the situation that you're in. And I was able to do that. I took advantage of everything, whatever. You know, I didn't take offense because they told me you had to do this or you had to do that. If that meant for me to stay out of jail and my freedom, then I did it. 
But I'm also the type of person that if I'm going to do something, I believe in absorbing everything mm-hmm. I can get out of it and then making it work for me. Because my thing was, you know, my mindset, and I share this with all of my clients, was never go back to jail. Once you have that mindset, it's like you will do whatever you have to do to make sure mm-hmm. you don't go back to jail. Because I didn't like it. It wasn't cute. It was not fun. It wasn't, you know, and I know as, as men, and I know there are women also incarcerated, but I used to tell them as men, you know, we have this macho thing going on where we think it's cool. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm this, I'm that. And I did 10 years and 20 years. That's nothing to brag about. You know, you should be embarrassed, mm-hmm. if anything. It's nothing to brag about. And there's nothing because we make each other feel good about the fact that, oh, you did 10 or you did 20, you must be a real man. No, a real man knows how to handle his business and cause himself to be better than what he has been in the past. And that's the way I see So, although these these programs are in place, uh, we all are aware that there are certain struggles that felons uh, face once they're released from prison. Can you shed some light on what is it that they they struggle to, to achieve or, or, you know, get a handle on when they get out of, of prison? Right. Well, there are you know, a lot of things. Number one, you have to deal with family issues. One of the things that happens is when you get incarcerated, like in New York, if you lived in a project development, you cannot go mm-hmm. back to your family in the projects because what happens is they will get word. They know that you've been incarcerated, especially if you were arrested in that development. You can't go back there because then mm. you try to go back there, they will put your whole family out. And so you have guys struggle with that because they have no place else to go. So now you have to okay. resort to going to a shelter system, which is a whole other level of living that you're not used to. So now you have to deal with that. And so it was, you know, it becomes very hard. Then you have people with other issues where they want to go live with their girlfriend or their they baby mama. They're not able to because she don't want to have nothing to do with you mm-hmm. because of all the things you did before you got incarcerated and you didn't messed up your life in that area. Now you don't have nowhere to go as far as that's concerned. Then you have some that come home and they got to deal with the mindset of people that you dealt with before you got arrested. And so now you may have changed your mindset. Maybe you went through the shock program and you're more positive now, but then you're coming out to people who are still in the same mindset. They see you as that thief you used to be or that crackhead you used to be, or they don't trust you no more because of so many bad things you did. And so you know, I try to tell clients all the time, you have to really change your mindset to understand other people's mindset because sometimes that's going to happen. You're going to run into people who may not forgive you for what you did in the past. You know, and things in that nature, just because you're out now, they don't see you as a new person. They see you as that same guy, you know, that did what you did to them, and they don't forgive you. And so you have to learn how to deal with that now because you're on a different path. So you mm-hmm. have to be able to deal with those struggles as well as your own struggles. And then, of course, the option of um, the fact that, you know, you don't have a job. You have to now find work. You have to now seek employment, which is hard to do. Now you have a felony or you have this background record. And so, of course, now you know how difficult it is to get a job when you have a background record now. And so you have to be able to deal with that. You have to know how to tweak your resume and know how to just be honest and present yourself. And I always tell brothers, it's about positivity. If You can take a, a bad situation and make it good with, your, with a positive attitude. You can really do that. You know, I've sat in plenty of interviews. Like I said, I guess I've just been blessed, one of those blessed. But I know it's because of my mindset and being able to sit in the interview and explain to them, listen, I was arrested for this, that, and the other, but I got my life together. I was able to go this program. I have this to show for it. This is what I've done since then. I've never been arrested again. I'm not going back. You know, it's just about having that positive attitude and being straightforward. And you can really, really overcome some of these obstacles that you have as far as getting out of prison. Gotcha. Now, um, one of the things that, you know, I feel it's hard for uh, felons to succeed after prison is finding a job. Now, you were uh, blessed to be able to start to work for the program that helped lift you up. But what are the options as far as jobs and employment uh, for felons? Because, I mean, the reality is I need to eat. 
I need to pay for some place, a roof over my head. I need to put clothes on my back. All of this requires income. So what places can felons go to to get a job? Well, there aren't too many, unfortunately. And, again, this is one of the reasons why, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking because of, you know, what I'm trying to do in my own personal life with the program that I created. Um, There are a lot of difficulties with that only because, number one, right now, the way the economy is, jobs are scarce regardless whether you've been in prison or not. So Mm -hmm. being in prison definitely is a strike against you. I think one of the things that I would also teach is that if you have the opportunity, it may not be the best opportunity, but if you're able to get into a shelter, say you don't have a place to live, you can get into a shelter. And like I always teach, the mentality is the most important thing. Sometimes you have to just really have a strong mentality to say, you know what, this is where I am right now. This is what I have to do for now. But it's only temporary because I'm on my way somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to go somewhere. So I've had, mm-hmm. you know, I've taught brothers sometimes if you got to stay in a shelter, which pays for everything pretty much, you don't, you don't have to worry about eating and sleeping, mm-hmm. that takes care of that. So even though you have your girlfriend across town or whatever, but what happens is they eventually, they're going to want you to support. You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to be able to, you know, and that's, that's nothing more but more pressure on you and more stress on you. So if you can get yourself into a shelter, have that part of, your life taken care of, and then, again, work on your mentality pertaining to your resume, trying to find little jobs you can do, or even going into entrepreneurship. You know, a lot of brothers have a lot of talent. They have a Mm -hmm. lot of things that they can do where before you didn't really know what to do with these talents that you may have, whereas now you may have a better idea. And, you know, with the program I use, I teach them, listen, dig into who you are. You know, there are a lot of... People out here that can do art, they can do crafts, a lot of things you can do and sell your, you know, your product or sell your paintings, sell your, your, you know, what you're doing. Get into that field if need be, whereas the economy is not working too good, then try to create something on your own. And I think that's important also. Find an alternative means, legal means to support yourself. Okay. Now, and you had also uh, mentioned just the um, the shelter part. Now, that's also another concern of mine because when you, you need a place to sleep and lay your head at every night. And I know from reading certain things like um, a lot of apartment complexes and stuff like that just won't rent to a felon. So I, I, I'm, I'm just baffled at what is the expectation? How do you expect for me to live if I can't find a place to sleep at at night? Well, there are places that will help you. Like for the city... For instance, there are there was one place called Palladia, which was really for ex-offenders that came out. They were able to go into this for at least six, three to six months, and they were able to be there for free, no, no, you know, free of charge. But they were required to at least look for work, try to find something, and the Palladia program would work with you as far as getting an apartment and things of that nature. And what I was going to say is, you want. One of the things you really want to do is connect with people. You know, that's one of the things I did. I took going to the network program, even parole officers, I got to know them. I connect with them. And then they see how positive you are and they see that you've changed and your attitude is different. They will help you. You know, we always look down on, you know, parole officers and you hear guys on parole, oh, man, you know, I ain't messing with him and blah, blah. They don't really care about you. And That's not always true. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, it's the attitude that we present to them that mm-hmm. they don't like. And so, of course, if you come out nasty, nobody's going to be prone to help you if you have a bad attitude already because you think you're doomed because you're already a felon. Mm-hmm. Oh, I ain't going to be able to do this. I ain't going to be able to do that. So you have to change your attitude, and people will help you. There is a lot of help that the state offers. You just have to dig and find it sometimes. And sometimes it's right in front of you. People think, oh, if I go to... Uh, uh, a fellowship program and just talk about my problems, it ain't going to mean nothing. Yes, it will, because there are a lot of things. You, you can look on the bulletin board on outside of the door. There are things, you know, play. you have to just find it. You have to really search and say, and like I said, have that mindset that says, you know what, I'm not going back, and I'm not going to continue to be this way anymore. I refuse. You have to really refuse. And unfortunately, a lot of guys don't do that. And even some that do, and it's still difficult, you know, I tell those type of people, you still have to maintain your mentality. 
you still have to get to a place where you say, eventually this is going to turn around for me and you got to maintain because it will. It really, really will. Because going back is not going to do nothing but set you back and then you find yourself even deeper in a situation than where you were before. Gotcha, gotcha. We're going to take our last break of the day and when we come back we're going to talk more with Joshua Brown about what he's got coming down the pipeline. Uh, But we will be right back. You're listening to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's Lana Reed. Oh, welcome back to Don't Box Me In. I am your host, Lana Reed, and we are talking with Josh Brown. I had some technical difficulties uh, during the break, and I'm still in panic mode, uh, so I'm laughing at myself. But, um, Joshua, you are now at the process where you're going to embark on starting your own program. Can you tell me, after numerous years, I guess, what, like 15, 16 years of dealing with these reentry programs, uh, these community programs, what problems do you see with what we have in place already? Well, one of the main problems I see is the inconsistency of the program itself. That is, we have programs that are in place, and then you have people that come out and there, number one is there's the inconsistency of the program itself, being consistent in saying what they're going to do and then actually following through with what they're going to do. Another Mm -hmm. problem is there is a lack of resources because you may go to one program that will help you get your mind right and maybe help you education-wise or another area, but then they lack in other areas. And so it's difficult because then you have to go to this program and then you have to be transferred to this program or they have to give you a number of somebody else. And, you know, what happens is the person winds up going from here to there to here to there, and eventually it takes a toll on you too. And so I find that to be a real big problem with a lot of the programs that we deal with. And not only that, but there aren't enough programs that have ex-offenders as employees. And I mean, you know, people may not agree, but I agree because even though I can learn something from someone who has a degree or who's never been incarcerated, but I can learn even so much more from someone who's been down the same road that I've been and now they've turned their lives around and they can give me some very valuable information because, you know, it's one thing to hear from somebody who's never been through it, but it's a difference. And I know for firsthand that when you talk to someone and you tell them that you've been down that road, you mm-hmm. get a special ear from that person. So I mm-hmm. think that makes a difference, too. Now, what you just said was kind of interesting to me. So it seems when somebody is released, so you're given this like list of, okay, you go to here for this program, here for this program, and here for this. So there's no centralized, like, one-stop shopping kind of place, usually? Right. Not really, no. It may be a place that has maybe five out of the ten things or ten services you need, and then you got to go somewhere else for that service or somewhere else for that, that. And it's always, which is, you know, now that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's good that they all network together, but a lot of times somewhere along the line somebody drops the ball or somewhere mm-hmm. along the line the, 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 the communication line falls and then, you know, people get discouraged. You know, you, mm-hmm. you want that help, and I get a lot of complaints about that. I can't go somewhere where I can get everything I need and get the help Mm -hmm. I need. And then people say they're going to do this, and they don't do it. People say, oh, I'm going to call you, I'm going to go with you, I'm going to do this and do that, and they don't do it. So um, it seems like a support system is is very important, which is one of the things that I hear ex-offenders struggle with is, like, reconnecting with family afterwards. Why is it so difficult to, you know, bond back with your, your sister or your your cousins or your mom or whatever after you've been released? Well, a lot of that, I, like I said earlier, comes from the things that have happened in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to consider the fact, and that's why I always teach guys, you got to really look at yourself and consider what you've done. You've got to mm-hmm. forgive yourself and then really become remorseful because, you know, a lot of these guys, we've done some crazy things. You know, you on drugs, you stealing, you robbing. You're doing things to your family that you would have never done. And it's hard to forgive you for that because then not only have you done these things, but you've done them multiple times. 
Mm-hmm. So at this mm-hmm. point, how do we trust you? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like the, the boy that cried wolf. I mean, how can I trust you now? This time you came home. Oh, you're going to mm-hmm. be so much better. And it's hard for, for your family to reconnect with you because, you know, there are some people who are fortunate where the family says, look, no matter what, I'm your family and I work with you, you know. And mm-hmm. so everybody don't get that. And so that's why you have to really get to the point where you create something on your own so that you can prove I think it's important that you prove to your family, listen, I deserve for you to give me another chance, even if it is the fifth chance or sixth chance. I've, I've, I've taken a different route this time, and I need you to really work with me on this. Or if it gets to the point where they are not able to forgive or not be able to reconnect, then you still got to move on because life goes on. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Now, I want to spend the last few minutes that we have talking um, about it's now – 15 years you've been working with these programs and you're now starting your own, you're trying to start your own. Why Why did you decide to branch off? Why Why create your own program? Well, one of the main reasons is because um, this all came about because my executive director, he retired, you know, I've been, he's been there for years, and in the process of retiring, there was a change of guard, so to speak, and so eventually, you know, people get laid off and things of that nature. And so the program itself, they lost their contracts with the Department of Probation and Parole, and so the the program itself kind of dwindled down, and then eventually we got the news that he was retiring, and some people were not were going to be out of jobs, and just funding also. So I said, you know what? Instead of keep going through all of this, let me create my own program. Not only that, but I saw a lot of flaws within certain programs, and I want to mm-hmm. create something that can uh, basically pick up the pieces to these different programs that are really have these different loopholes and not to say that I would be a perfect program but I kind of understand how to put some things together that will really really be intricate to the needs of ex-offenders which means a whole program that you can get everything that's provided for you whether it be shelter school uh, food housing um, the, the mental health that you need and really the encouragement that you need, the support that you need, support level from the family. And with my program, you'll be able to bring your family members to your groups and stuff like that. All of that stuff is important to give you an overall balance to help you really succeed. And so I decided to branch off and get my program started so that I can have this in place for these men and women that really, really need this program. Gotcha. Good stuff. Now, now I think I read that you wanted to offer... Uh, residential locations to the various boroughs in New York. What exactly is a residential location? Well, a residential location would be what I've done is I scattered out each borough, which is five boroughs in New York, and pick out a building that's large enough to be renovated into a sort of halfway house. The difference mm-hmm. between other halfway houses is that it would be you would be required to attend the network of uh, the J. Brown Empowerment Program, which is what it would be called within that housing area. And so I wanted to do that because you have a lot of guys, like you said, that come out, they don't have nowhere to go, they need shelter. That's important. You know, nobody wants to live on the street. I've been there, done that, which I, I guess I didn't put in my uh, uh, background also, but I've done that for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. I was homeless. Mm-hmm. I was sleeping in my mm-hmm. car, you know, and I had to do it, and I dealt with it, and I made it work. But nobody really knew, you know, that was mm. a good thing. But, I, you know, I hid it from my family. They didn't really know. And I'm the oldest of four children, and my mom passed away when I was young. Actually, when I was incarcerated, I lost my mom. So when mm. I came home, I didn't have a whole lot of support factor. And then I had to take care of my younger sibling. So it was, like, really hard for me. You know, I tell brothers all the time, there's a lot of stories you can tell, but I done been through most of them. So mm-hmm. I was able to succeed. And, you know, I want to be able to have a residential area, which means that if you are from the Bronx, you can go to that particular building if you need shelter. You can stay there for, you know, maybe three to six months, sort of like what the Palladia program was doing. But you'll have to attend. I will have workshops. I will have everything that they need will be in that one building. And then we will be in a place to help you prepare to find an apartment on your own along with the job and things of that nature and have it like a revolving, a beginning revolving door for people that are coming out so they can get themselves together. Because one of the main things I'm finding is is that once you become institutionalized, it's hard to come out on the street and just live this regular life. You know, sometimes you got to come out. It's going to take a minute. So that's cool. That's what this residential place will do. It will give you the opportunity to get your bearings, 
and then, okay, hey, let's help you get out of this slowly but surely, and let's make it work for you. Gotcha. So in our last minute or two, um, I think we talked, and you're, you finally got a grant writer. Uh, what else do you need uh, to get the program off the ground? Well, the bottom line is funding. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> needs some money. Money Everybody to make it money. work. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> needs money. But the basic thing is, you know, for people to understand that, you know, that's what it takes. Funding mm-hmm. is what it takes. I mean, you know, I wish that I was, you know, I had some type of, you know, I was a basketball player, football player, or something where I could make millions of dollars. I would just put it all into my program because I know mm-hmm. it's going to work. I know it is. I, I know for sure. I've done it. I've been through it. I've done a few pilot programs uh, at some facilities that I used to work at. They let me come through. I'm doing actually one now on Rikers Island, which is one of the biggest jails in New York City. And it's it's working good. So it's just having the funding that I need to really put this to uh, together like it should be. And so for anyone that is interested, you know, like I said, I will have my website up very, very soon. You'll be able to uh, go on, look at it, donate, or you can call. I'm on Twitter. Uh, you have my email address up there. You can reach out to me. And, you know, hopefully someone will say, hey, this is something that I really want to invest in. And, you know, I'm working on my 501c3, so that will be something that will be in place also to be able to really get this off the ground and working. But in the meantime, I'm doing, you know, pilot programs here, pilot programs there. I'm still, you know, experiencing in my life and teaching and doing what I need to do. And and real quick, the the email address that you have set up for the uh, empowerment program is what? It's jbempowerment at gmail.com. Okay, and uh, that's the way they can reach you if they want some more information um, about getting involved with what you're doing or seeing what you're doing. So, uh, as always, my hour goes so fast. I'm here at I'm here at the end of this again, but it's been a pleasure um, talking with Joshua Brown today and giving me some more understanding about the complexities that uh, ex-offenders face upon release. Um, I don't think people fully understand the burdens uh, that they have to go through. Uh, Joshua, thank you for sharing your story with me today, and I wish you much success with everything that you're doing. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, and I think it's a great thing you're doing. Thank you again. And I can be reached on Twitter at Joshua Brown. Follow me and you'll get more information also. That Twitter again was what? Joshua Brown. There you go. There you go. Well, that's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host. Lana Reed, and you can visit my website, lanareed.com, my Facebook, Lana Reed Online, or even catch up with me on Twitter, Lana Reed. Until next time, I look forward to connecting with you.